We're in chapter 2 tonight of the book of Revelation. Uh, let us go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into this book. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you desire to be known, that you desire your people to know you, that there is a, a living word that you have for us. We don't just read an outdated book. We don't just brush off the dust and read about what you spoke in the past to people in the past and the things that you did in the past. You are present with us today, and we believe that. And not only do we believe it, we need it. We need, we need a word today from your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would grant that very personal living revelation to us. You say of your word that it is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and we pray tonight that you would manifest that in our lives. No man can create your revelation or bring it to another person's heart. Only you can do that, and, and only we can determine to hear what it is that you have to say to us. And so, as you choose to speak tonight, to our hearts, we choose to hear, we choose to receive, uh, we choose to meet your word with faith and obedience so that our lives can be transformed and so that you can be glorified. We bless your name tonight in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we're starting uh, the, the first of seven letters that Jesus wrote to churches that were in ancient Asia Minor. And when I say ancient Asia Minor, I'm talking about modern-day Turkey, if you're not uh, aware of where that was. You know, some of you in your Bibles have Bible maps in the back of your Bible. I would encourage you to check that out later on. And um, most Bible maps, if they are in your Bible, actually will give you... Uh, We'll give you not only the map of Asia Minor, but we'll give you the location of these seven churches. Uh, you'll notice that they're kind of in a circle. And interestingly enough, when the mail came from Rome over to Asia Minor, this was the postal route that the mail would travel on. So it would start in Ephesus, then go to Smyrna, then go to Pergamos, then to Thyatira, then to Philadelphia, then to uh, Sardis, and then Laodicea. So this was, you know, this route was a, a, a well-recognized route, um, but on this route, there were seven churches. Not many churches in these cities, but there, were, there was one church, because back in the day, you know, within the first century AD of uh, the, the Church of Christ being birthed, there was, there was only one church. There weren't multiple denominations, there wasn't non-denominations, there weren't, you know, all sorts of different opportunities on every corner, you know, to hit a different church. There was one church in each of these cities. And so, so there's a letter that Jesus uh, gave to the messenger in each of these, these churches. I, I think, you know, what if that happened today? What if Jesus wrote a letter to Calvary Chapel, Las Vegas? Uh, what would that letter say? Don't say out loud what you think it would say, but... And I ponder this a lot. You know, I ponder this a lot. Like, we put a lot of effort uh, into making sure our church glorifies Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's all that we desire 
Uh, and, you know, we're not there. We're, we're not there perfectly, right? We're not there perfectly. We do want to make sure that every single thing that we do in this ministry is pleasing to him. Because if he were write a, to, to write us a letter, I for sure wouldn't want it to be like the letter to the Church of the Laodiceans, or even like the letter tonight that we're going to read, the, the letter to the church uh, at Ephesus. And, you know, just in speaking of these letters and the content of these letters, they, they follow a consistent pattern. I'm going to share that pattern with you tonight. So as you are reading these letters, you can kind of consistently see those things that Jesus is dealing with within these churches. Uh, and it is interesting to note that, you know, the church, the, the letters are full of commendations and the letters are also full of corrections. There are only two churches of the seven that Jesus uh, had nothing bad to say, nothing to correct them for. Uh, there are only two churches that Jesus had nothing good to say, nothing to commend them for. And so the rest really is a mixed bag. And we'll talk about each of those churches as we move through these letters. Um, you know, I don't know what it was like to be a, pas a pastor at the time and to uh, get a letter from Jesus. Could you imagine on a Sunday morning, hey, y'all, Jesus wrote us a letter, you know? I mean, I don't know how that would come off, um, but I, I will tell you that I think uh, that these churches were in for a surprise and that some of the content of these letters would have really been shocking, especially as the content rolls out. So I think that's true with the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is one of those churches, like if, if they had a big Christian publishing uh, ministry or arm during that particular era, I think Ephesus probably would have been one of those model churches that books would have been written about and how you can formulate your ministry after. And, you know, you definitely want to do everything like Ephesus does because Ephesus, the church there, did everything uh, the right way. They were doing, it would seem, all of the right things. And so the Bible says in verse 1, to the angel of the church, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, so we're going to take this verse by verse, seven verses tonight, one church every night. To the angel, the angelos, I mentioned this last week, uh, that word simply means messenger. For, for the vast majority of the use of this Greek word, we're talking about angelic beings. Um, however, it also refers to human messengers. The simple uh, interpretation of this is that they're was an angel, an actual angel, a celestial being that was in some sense over and responsible for these particular seven churches. On the other hand, there is the view that, no, this doesn't refer to an actual celestial being. This refers to a, a human messenger, somebody who really was responsible for not only teaching the people in these churches but also leading them, shepherding them. So, so the other view on this is that we're, we're talking about uh, letters that were directed to and through, letters that were directed to and through the pastors of these churches. And you know, there's sufficient evidence for this to be uh, a potential. For instance, John the Baptist sent messengers, John the baptizer sent messengers to Jesus and his disciples. You remember when John was in jail, he was struggling wondering if Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And so he sent messengers to Jesus and his followers just to find out, you know, what, what the deal really was. Um, the word for messenger there is angelos. And so 
probably, this is my, my view, um, probably we're talking about human messengers. In addition to that, there is no, in the scriptures, there's no correction or commendation for angels. That's content that you know, we don't come across in the New Testament. And there's literally no evidence to indicate that every church has some type of guardian angel. Um, now listen, there are warring angels around the people of God. That's just a fact. And we know Hebrews says that, that God gives angels to minister to those who have inherited everlasting life. And so we know even in our own lives, God sends warring angels to minister to us in whatever capacity that may be. Uh, and so, so really, I would say kind of in a tight contextual sense, we're, we're, we're talking about human leaders. Ephesus was a wild city. And, you know, back in the day, 2,000 years ago, if there was any city or any cities that were like Las Vegas, probably Corinth and Ephesus would sit at the top. It was the fourth largest city in the ancient world, so um, just about 200 to 300,000 people. That doesn't seem like a lot, but for an ancient city, it was really significant. Um, some of you have been to Ephesus with us. You know, we've been there a number of times, and the archaeological ruins are absolutely spectacular. They're amazing. Uh, it's worth your while just to check uh, the archaeological ruins out on YouTube. Uh, there are lots of videos that you can view this through, uh, and they've been really, really well preserved. You know, we will take you to places like um, the Library of Celsus, and um, some of you are familiar with the facade of the library, an absolutely amazing architectural um, creation. And as, you, as you're in the library, part of the story there is that uh, there was a tunnel that connected the library to the brothel across the street. And so guys would get dropped off by their wives at the library. Hey, babe, you know, I need to do a little research. Well, they were doing, re they were doing all the wrong kind of research, if you know what I'm talking about. And, um, and then, you know, they would go into the tunnel to the brothel across the street. And just, uh, you know, just, just a reminder that the evil and wickedness of the heart of humanity has always been there. In addition to the Library of Celsus, uh, you can tour the theater, uh, which is absolutely massive. The theater seated about 25,000 to 30,000 people. That's half of the size of the Allegiant Stadium as far as like being able to uh, hold people, the people capacity. Um, but there's a lot of history there too. As you read the book of Acts, this was the place that some of the believers were dragged to as Demetrius, the silversmith, had really created a riot. He was so upset that these Christians had, had really uh, had impacted the buying and selling of idols to the extent, extent that some of these individuals were actually losing their business. And so... Of course, they wanted to persecute the believers, and Paul was rushed out of the city of Ephesus, um, but it's an amazing thing to be present in the theater there. It, had, uh, it was a city known for tremendous commercial capacity, and it was actually on a trade route that was very important for uh, Roman trade, uh, so it was a very affluent city. People would come from all over the known world, not just to buy and sell, uh, but also to experience you know, everything in Ephesus, because what happened in Ephesus stayed in Ephesus. It was, in those ancient days, a seaport town. If you go with me today, it's a 20-mile it's a bus ride from the port all the way to Ephesus, so it's no, no longer um, a seaport city. 
uh, and that's because of landfills and a lot of other um, geological reasons. Uh, but at that point in time, it sat right on the water. Uh, it had a very sexualized climate um, there in Ephesus. In fact, this was one of the things that many people came from around the world to experience. Uh, the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana was in Ephesus. This is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Um, but, you know, this, this religion, at the base of this religion, interfacing with the goddess Diana uh, included a sexual experience with the temple prostitutes. There were well over a thousand temple prostitutes that serviced the temple, and so people would come from all over the world to, to worship uh, Artemis. It was in this climate that Paul planted the church in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 18, um, I want to encourage you to just spend some time reading the different uh, accounts where Ephesus is mentioned in the book of Acts. Paul was on his way back to Jerusalem after his second missionary journey, and kind of as he was passing through, uh, he dropped a couple gospel bombs in Ephesus, and they became the seed of a church plant. Uh, and then on his third missionary journey, he actually uh, came to Ephesus and spent more than a year and a half there establishing a school of ministry. And that school of ministry had a massive impact. Uh, the Bible says that everyone in the region had heard the message of the gospel. I believe that's not just because the Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel, but because he had raised up men and women to do that very thing. And then, of course, as you're reading through the book of Acts, you get to Acts chapter 20, and Paul, as he's going to Jerusalem, uh, where ultimately he'll be in a riot and he'll be arrested, he stops in Miletus to minister to the elders from Ephesus, and he lets them know that upon his departure, savage wolves will, um, will rise up within the church and seek to draw disciples after themselves. Paul later, of course, we know, would write uh, the letter to the church there in Ephesus, and then we have this letter here uh, that Jesus has dictated to the leader uh, or the, the lead pastor in that church. So of all of the churches that are mentioned, I'm saying all of this to say, of all of the churches that are mentioned in the New Testament, there is more content about Ephesus than any other church. And in addition to that, by the time that uh, this letter is read in this church, this church has existed for 40 years. So for four decades, uh, believers have been uh, being discipled and raised up and trained and people have been being born again in this ministry. The first generation of believers is probably passed on at this point and there's the second generation of believers that are in the church and leading the church as well. So to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, what you're going to notice as we go through each of these letters is right in the beginning, let me just, let me just tell you how each of these uh, letters works with respect to how they're ordered. Uh, you have an identification in the, in the beginning, you have a revelation, you have a commendation, you have a correction, you have a motivation, and then you have a reward. So for the most part, what you'll notice is there are those six elements uh, in each of the letters to these churches. We've already talked about the identification of the particular 
uh, church and its location. Now we're talking about uh, Revelation. And in the Revelation, what Jesus is going to do, for the most part, he is going to reveal something particular about himself that John saw uh, in that immediate revelation when he turned around. Remember, he turned to see the voice that was speaking behind him, and he saw this amazing, you guys remember this? He saw this amazing revelation of Jesus, right? The golden band around his, his, his chest, his feet were like burnished brass. His hair was white like wool. His eyes were burning like flames of fire. Out of his mouth proceeded a two-edged sword. Um, as John began that, of course, we're talking about the one who has the seven stars in his right hand, the one who is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. As you read these seven letters, Christ is going to pull out a piece of that revelation that John saw, and you know, my view on this is that he is going to draw uh, the attention of the church to something that they had forgotten about him, something that they had missed. Um, in, in respect to the church at Ephesus, he reminds them, I have the leaders in my right hand. I have the seven stars in my right hand. I am the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. You guys remember what the seven golden lampstands are? They're the churches. And so it would seem, and I think this makes sense as we read this letter together, it would seem that this church had lost sight that Christ was supposed to be central, that he was the center figure, that he was the one that everything should be revolving around. Uh, in fact, we're going to see later that they had mistaken their busyness for love and for his presence. They were a very active church. They were engaged in all the right things, but they had mistaken, like we so often do, they had mistaken their busyness for love for him and, you know, taking for granted his presence. He says in verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Hey, that's awesome, isn't it? Right? I mean, hey, a little checkup from the neck up. Jesus gives to the church. It's like, hey, I see it, right? I know. I know what's going on there. Like nothing's been missed on me. You, you know, there's nothing that's hidden. There's nothing that's concealed. I know everything that's going on in the church. And I just want to commend y'all because Ephesus was in the southern part of Asia Minor. I just want to commend y'all. It's, you know, these things are really good. Let me give you the litany. Let me give you the list. There's not a single thing that's been forgotten or overlooked by me. You're serving. This is what he says. You're serving. There's there's a, a laboring, there's a pouring out of your soul to the extent where, where there is a weariness. It's not lost on me how hard you guys are working. It's not lo lost on me how many hours you've invested. It's not lost on me how much time um, that you have given to divine purpose and to um, being engaged in things that are eternal. This church was dedicated to, to working for the Lord. This was not a lazy church. This was not an entertain me church. Uh, this was not a let's just go check the box church. This church was filled with people who wanted to be busy about the business. You know what I'm talking about? They wanted to be busy about the business. And Jesus says, I see it. I see that. I also see that there's an endurance. There's a patience that you have. You are willing to endure difficult things. You are willing to bear with with those who are evil. 
Um, you are willing to endure the difficulty of the times. You, you aren't giving in. You've not caved. You've been willing to draw a line in the sand. You've not been consumed by the culture. You've not just allowed yourself to be influenced by the world. You're not the lukewarm church. You know, those issues that are close to my heart, you have been faithful in a very corrupt generation to draw a line in the sand and say, the line stops here. No, not me. We're not going there. You have, in a sense, been a light in a very dark place. You know, I would imagine that for the church of Ephesus, we're, we're talking about the sexual temptation that these believers were dealing with every single day. You know, the temptation to uh, to worship and make sacrifices to false idols, uh, the temptation to cave and to yield to the way that business is done in the world. And Jesus says, you know, you've, you've endured the difficulty of that. You've not, just, you've not just laid down and taken it. You've not allowed yourself to be influenced by the ways of the world around you. They were dedicated to wait on the Lord. They were not only dedicated to work for the Lord, they were dedicated to waiting on the Lord. In other words, God, we're going to trust you and we're going to do it your way. And it may cost us in the end, you know, I mean, there may be a price that we're going to pay because there always is a temporary price that we pay when we don't do things the world's way, but they were willing to wait on the Lord and do things God's way. Uh, you know those who call themselves apostles and are not. And so in addition to uh, having endurance and patience, in addition to working hard, they were also willing to rebuke. They were willing to rebuke those individuals who were false leaders in the church. And so, I mean, this is not an easy thing, right? It, this means that they knew their Bible, they knew doctrine, they understood what truth was, and in the early church, you know, it might be hard to really fathom that within 40 years of the church being birthed, there was already heresy that had infiltrated uh, the church. There, was already, there were already things like Gnosticism, you know, a combining of ancient Eastern dualism with Christian theology, and there were, it was producing a lot of confusion within the body of Christ. And so, you know, the people in Ephesus, were, they weren't going to tolerate it. You know, there was a purity in the teaching of God's word. They were willing to call out those who claimed themselves to be leaders in the church and were not. They were dedicated to walking in righteousness. Uh, and so, you know, the final thing that we see here is that uh, they, they also called out evil. So, so there was that dedication to righteousness. Not only were they willing to identify those who were false teachers, they were willing to identify sin within the church and call it for what it was. I read all these things and I think, man, what kind of problem can you have with this church? I mean, these were really dedicated people. And I think that as they read this, they're like, man, that is just so good to hear. Jesus sees everything that we're doing and check, 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 all those things are true. Like we really poured our hearts out for the Lord. Like I said, I think in some ways this could have been viewed as a model church, you know, the church that is doing all of the right things, but in everything that he says, they were missing the most important thing. This would have been a serious shock to them. He says in verse four, check this out. Can you imagine hearing these words? Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Man, could you imagine? 
Can you imagine like you're on this high, you're thinking, man, we're, we're in good shape. We've been doing the right things. You know, he sees everything that we're doing. And then all of a sudden the shoe drops and he says, nevertheless, just that word right there in the Greek, the word is Allah, which means in great contrast to everything that I've just said, you know, to the extent, it's a very strong word, to the extent of almost canceling everything else out, just to hear that word. And I don't know, I don't know if pastor spoke as fast as I do. Maybe he was a slow reader, right? Maybe he was like just plodding through this and then said the word nevertheless, and there's just a big pause. And you can imagine, you can imagine every heart beating, right? Every heart beating, thinking, what in the world is he going to say next? And, and just the sense of total and absolute shock as this contrast is being drawn and he drops this, he says this very hard thing, I have this against you, you have left. You have left your first love. You know, the word left means to dismiss. It means to depart from. And let me just make sure you understand tonight, we're not talking about apostasy. We're not talking about a group of believers that no longer believe in the gospel, that have abandoned their faith. That is not what he is saying. But he is saying, you have been so busy in all of your busyness, you've forgotten me. You've left me out. Your works are like an empty shell. They're visible on the outside, but they have no substance on the inside. You've forgotten why you started doing all of this in the first place. You know, I think about the total shock that these believers must have had when this revelation was given. And make no mistake about it, probably, most likely, not all of them received this. I'm sure. I'm sure there were some that were like, just hardened their heart, found a reason to excuse it. But I wonder, and when that revelation was given and, you know, the, the veil was torn away, it is so easy for us to deceive ourselves. Like, can we just be honest with each other tonight? It is so easy for us to deceive ourselves. And honestly, like the church of Ephesus, it concerns me the most as a pastor because, because we can be in the process of doing all these great things for God. And, you know, you can easily we can this could have been the it could have been he could have said it like this uh to the angel of the staff at calvary chapel las vegas and i'm not saying we're ephesus but i'm saying that we do so much for god it is easy for us to fall into this trap it is easy for us to fall into this trap and as a pastor having pastored for over 20 years i know that there have been times in my life where the Lord has spoken this letter to me and I've had to pause and totally reassess my motivation and my purpose in doing what I do. Is it really for him? Is it really for his glory? Is it really an expression of love? They had, they had begun to work so hard and so much time had passed that they had forgotten why they got into it at the very beginning. Like, honestly, literally, it wasn't even about the Lord anymore. And, you know, he loved these people so much that he was unwilling to let them continue in this type of condition without a personal revelation. And, and I imagine, you know, it was probably the, the frog in the pot thing. This was probably something that happened over the course of time. 
that each of these individuals, they knew in their heart that they were beginning to drift, but you know, it is so easy to rationalize sin in our lives. It's just so easy to rationalize sin. There's nobody better than rationalizing sin than yourself, right? Than yourself. Somebody amen that tonight because you know that that's true and you don't even want to say amen to it, but it's just a fact. We lie to ourselves, you know, we lie to ourselves. And, and, you know, in the beginning of that place of lying, there is a sense of conviction and we know it's wrong, but, but we're determined. We're determined to accommodate something we shouldn't accommodate. We're determined to pacify ourselves with an attitude that we should not be pacifying. And pretty soon, you know where that road leads? It leads us to a place where we start believing our own lie. We start believing our own lie, and that's, that's called self-deception, and self-deception is the hardest thing to be talked out of because when people try to talk you out of it, you've already framed them as telling you something that's not true. You're unwilling. I'm unwilling to yield in that place. And sometimes it, say, it takes something as jarring as the revelation of the Holy Spirit to wake us up. I would imagine that these people had lost their joy in serving. I would imagine that they, they started to become a little bit disillusioned. Um, I would imagine that, that they started to view their efforts as works, and it really did become just a labor for them. You know, can you imagine what this is like in marriage when you just go through the motions and you stop doing what you do for your spouse because you love him or her? And you know, when that happens, like your spouse knows you so well, like right away, you know, it's, hey, what's wrong, babe? Something's missing here. It's like you're just going through the motions. No, I'm not, you're just sensitive. You're just emotional. You're just whatever. And, and you know that when it's like that in marriage, how unhealthy that can be, how much more so in our relationship with the Lord. It is a scary thing to realize that you can be doing all the right things and still be wrong. You can be doing all the right things and still be wrong. There's not a, a single thing as far as their efforts that Jesus criticizes them for. And yet it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says. He says, listen, I can speak with tongues. I can prophesy with the best of them. I can have understanding and knowledge and faith that can move mountains. I can be the most charitable person. I can even give my body to the stake to be burned. But if I have not love, it profits me nothing. It profits me nothing. Listen, God help us. God help us to remember why we do what we do and who we do it for. We do it for him. We do it for him. We don't do it for our image. We don't do it for our advancement. We don't do it for our opportunity. Listen, I don't mean to like beat a dead horse, but I'm going to anyway. Sometimes, you know, sometimes as a pastor, sometimes people uh, just have an angle. Sometimes people just have an angle and they really, they're, what they're looking for is an opportunity. There are a lot of opportunists in the church. And sometimes it's not really about, it's not really about just simply loving God and glorifying him. Sometimes it's about, well, what do I get out of it? What is the opportunity I get? How are my gifts going to be used? You know, how can you meet my needs? And in all of that, we've completely and totally lost sight. And you know what? That heart, that heart will be revealed the minute 
sacrifice is involved in your serving. The minute sacrifice is involved in your serving, if you're an opportunist or you've just been looking for an angle or you're looking for how your gift can be used, the, the minute you have to sacrifice something, most likely you are out. Because love, is the love for God is the only thing that is going to enable you to endure when times get tough. And you know what? Times will get tough. When you serve God, you better expect there to be great difficulty. But, but when the difficulty comes, what binds you to continue and to be steadfast is that you're not doing it for yourself. You are doing it because you love the Lord. How does he navigate uh, this particular church to uh, remedy the situation? Let me just say to you, thank God it doesn't end with verse 4. You know, could you imagine? Hey, look, you've left your first love. You guys pretty much suck. I'm out. We out. Bye-bye. We, the Trinity, we out. And, you know, like, could you imagine if he just dumped us? If he just dumped this church, but he doesn't dump his people. He loves them, and he provides an opportunity. As long as you have breath in your lungs, there is opportunity to make it right with God. Verse 5 says, and here's the three R's. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. So this is the remedy. He says, number one, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember that place. You know, from where you have fallen is a, a Greek phrase. Um, it was used when a ship would run aground. Hey, listen, you, you've run aground and you need to get things right. So you need to remember that place. You need to remember that place of love, those very first steps. You need to recognize, listen, you need to recognize that there's a problem. You need to stop living in la-la land. You need to stop justifying your situation and position. You need to stop rationalizing what's going on in your life, and you need to own it. Hey, by the way, there is no making things right with God unless you and I own our sin, like period. And I'll tell you, I'm concerned about the church today because there are all sorts of pulpits that will give you inspiring messages all day long, but never a challenge, never a challenge to own the sin, never a challenge to, to acknowledge what the real problem is. And there is no reconciliation with the Father unless we own our sin. And so he says, listen, remember, wake up to what is really going on. Repent. The, the second R, repent. Stop. Stop this. Stop in your tracks. Don't take another step. Don't go any further. You need to do a U-turn. You need to do a U-turn for Christ. That was a shameless plug for our great ministry up in Pahrump. You need to stop and you need to do a 180-degree turn. You've been going south you need to start going north. You need to acknowledge what's happening. You need to take responsibility for it. And you need, to you need to assert your will by faith, believing that as you do, I'm going to supply the power. That's what re repentance is. Repentance is not believing that you and your own strength are going to solve your problem. It's a step of faith. Repentance is a gift that comes from God because he doesn't have to give us the opportunity to repent. Metanoa means to change your mind. You're, you're changing your mind about the way that you have seen things. You're recognizing that while you've pacified it in your own eyes, it looks very different in the eyes of God, right? You're recognizing that God sees sin differently. 
and you're looking to the cross, which is the greatest demonstration of how God perceives sin. It, it had to be nailed to the tree. The son had to bear it all. He can't turn a blind eye. It's not that our moral efforts pull us up out of the pit. No, Jesus had to die in our place because there is no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of blood. A sacrifice had to be made. How serious is sin? It sent the son to the cross. And so we change our mind about the way we see sin. Remember, wake up, own it, stop in your tracks, do a U-turn and redo the third R. Redo your first works. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning. Those initial steps that you took in responding in faith to the gospel. And I'm not saying be born again again. You know, some people get born again a hundred times. I'm not saying get born again again. I'm just saying you got to start over, right? You got you to gotta start fresh. You got to rededicate, recommit your life to me because you love me, because you believed in the gospel. Love is where it started, right? Love is where it started. Love is where it's supposed to stay. He gives a motivation now. He says uh, in verse 5, let me just reread the whole verse. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else. And by the way, as a parent, you can justify your or else to your kids because Jesus did it. And if, No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> but let me just say, it is okay for you to have consequences with your kids, okay? Do not enable your kids to sin. That is a message for another time. Sorry for having an ADD moment. It happens to me from time to time. Or else... I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What does he say? He says, listen, you need to handle this the right way or I'm shutting your church down. Oh, that's heavy, isn't it? You need, to hand, you need to repent. You need to address this issue. And if you don't address this issue, he's not talking again about apostasy and taking away their salvation. He's saying, I am going to shut your church down. You're a lampstand. You're supposed to be shining for me. You're like the menorah filled with the spirit. People seeing your good works and glorifying your father who is in heaven. The problem is you've left your first love. And so your light's not shining the way it's supposed to be. And so if you don't resolve this issue, I'm going to come and I'm going to shut the church down. By the way, um, if you do go with me to Ephesus today, you'll see that you'll see the ruins of the church, but you'll see no modern church. In fact, within three centuries of the writing of this particular letter, there was no uh, Christian church in the city of Ephesus. He says in verse six, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We're gonna talk about uh, this in some detail and I'll explain to you the different views on who the Nicolaitans were. My personal view is we're talking about people that were using spiritual uh, authority to uh, abuse other people. They were little dictators in the church, and Jesus says, I hate it. Uh, we see that prevalent today in churches, you know, unfortunately. Verse 7, final thing here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, everybody that was present had heard, but not everybody that was present had heard. You know what I'm talking about? It's like right now. 
Everybody who is present has heard, but not everybody who is present has heard. I mean, you may have tuned out from what I was saying at verse two. In fact, I'm talking about you right now and you don't even know I am because you're just so tuned out and everyone's laughing and you're thinking you missed a joke, but the thing is this, you are the joke. You are the joke. But, but you... <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back to the message, all right? Like there's more to it than just being present. There's more to it than just being present. There's more to it than just taking it into your ears. He's saying it's got to go, not, it's got, you have to be present and you have to be hearing, but it's got to seep deep within your heart. You know, as a, a pastor, I'll tell you, like when people, when people are talking about how God speaks to them through a particular message, whoever is teaching here at this church, I'm so encouraged because that's what we want to have happen. We don't want people just to be present to be present. We don't want people just checking a box to say, hey, we showed up at church. We do not want a, a multitude of people coming so that we can say, hey, our church has grown to this size and you know, we, we now fit in the mega church you know, category because we have, who cares if you've got thousands of people coming and no one's listening? Like, who cares? Who cares? And one day, I don't, want, I don't want God to say, hey, Derek, you know what? You, you put on a great show, but, but there weren't any transformed lives. Like, please, God, please, God, don't let that happen. May God stir a hunger within our hearts for his word, for what his Holy Spirit has to say to us. Listen, when the words are read, the prayer is prayed, God, supply the unction and power so that the word flies like an arrow to the heart of every person who hears. And listen, before I pray that for you, I pray that for myself. God, help me to never be in a place where I ask you to hear something that I have not heard myself. I don't want to be that kind of leader, and you don't want to be part of that kind of church. But may God work within our hearts so that it's more than just being present. It's more than just taking something in and saying, hey, that was a nice talk, right? No, it's not a talk. It's not a talk. It is the Holy Scriptures. It is the Word of God. It is God speaking in the now to us. And you know the evidence of having heard the Holy Spirit, do you know what it is? Do you know what the evidence is? Do you know what the evidence is? What is it? Yeah, it's, it's receiving it by faith, being obedient, and having your life changed. That, that's the evidence. How, God, how can I know that I've really been listening to your word? Well, has there been change? Don't be hearers of the word alone, deceiving yourself, but be doers of the word, James said. Don't just sit there and think that because you've been exposed to the teaching of the scripture that somehow your job's been fulfilled. No, when God gives revelation, there's, it comes with expectation. He speaks to us for a purpose, and you know that there is a responsibility that we bear when he speaks to us. To whom much is given, much is required. When the Spirit of God, like a treasure, downloads his heart to a people or to a person that is to be taken as a divine treasure and embraced by faith, receiving the implanted word with meekness, embraced by faith, and then obeyed because he deserves to be obeyed. 
Notice this also. I just want to say, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. Notice that's plural. Like it would be easy. Some are like, well, that's the church at Ephesus. That doesn't apply to me, Pastor. Well, that's why he included the word plural uh, in, a, in a plural way, because what's written here really is for all of us. And then this is the reward. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. Uh, Genesis 3.22, also Revelation 22, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so we see the tree of life again. It is in the new celestial city in the very paradise of God. And uh, it will be part of the reward for those who have had an ear to hear, for those who have responded to the correction that Christ has given to them for those who are obedient to the revelation, we're not talking about a system of works, just a demonstration of the real relationship that exists between ourselves and God. Because if we really do love him, if he's our Abba, if he's our heavenly father, if we submitted our lives to him, how can we not say yes to those things that he has spoken to us? Father, we love you. We say that with our lips. We mean it with our hearts. And yet... God, we know that we can ourselves be self-deceived. Father, we need revelation. We need you to speak to us. How would we ever know if we were off the rails unless your spirit gave us eyes to see? And so tonight, oh God, we pray that you would be merciful, just mercifully move among us. It's a, a beautiful yet challenging word to this church that, that from all outward signs was doing everything right, but, but God was missing the most important thing on the inside. Thank you that though they may have left their first love, you never left them. Thank you that your love persevered, that your love continued. Thank you that you didn't just write them off, but you gave them opportunity. And we know tonight that you give us the same opportunity as well. Maybe, maybe for some of us, we have left our first love. Maybe there's another issue that you revealed tonight. Maybe there's a word of encouragement that you gave this evening. I pray whatever it is that your spirit has spoken, and truly that has been the desire of our heart this evening. I pray that that special word, that treasure, will be received by faith, and that it will be matched with obedience. We pray tonight that that there would be real impact through what you've spoken. God, this letter that's 2,000 years old is timeless. And we've sensed its power tonight. 